The left so far is 0 for 2 on foreign policy efforts to get the Biden administration to do something that they didn't do. It is the first week of March, and welcome to episode 69 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, NSI Senior Fellow Lester Munson will be doing a deep dive with David Gordon, Senior Advisor for Geoeconomics and Strategy at IISS and former Director of Policy Planning at the Department of State. David, welcome to Fault Lines. Happy to be here. So uh, six months ago, you uh, were part of a truly influential report uh, from another think tank, the Carnegie Endowment, called Making U.S. Foreign Policy Work Better for the Middle Class. You were part of this group. Jake Sullivan was part of this group, Doug Lute, other luminaries. Can you tell us about that report and how you think the Biden administration is going to use it in its national security decision making? Yeah, so this was a really interesting gr- group, and, and and I so enjoyed being part of it. So this basically uh, grew out of uh, concern th- four years ago or so that that um, sort of mainstream foreign policy types had paid too little attention to what the impact of foreign policy was on average Americans, particularly working class and middle class Americans, through some of the the downsides of globalization and open trade and all of this. So this was, so Jake Sullivan was actually the inspirer of this. It was his idea. Uh, And he brought together this great bipartisan group uh, of of people who had, most of whom had worked in in reasonably senior positions in government. So Dan Price, who had been the the G7 Sherpa uh, under the Bush administration, he and I were the sort of main Republican voices, but they had a military guy, General Doug Lute, who had served both uh, President Bush and President Obama. And it, it was just a really interesting gr- group. Uh, and I think that the conclusion was twofold. One, that, that basically this, this distinction between foreign policy on the one hand domestic politics on the other was not a useful one, uh, and that foreign policy should be thought about uh, very much in its relationship to domestic policy. Uh, and then second, that, that, the, that the focus of foreign policy needed to take into account more specifically these these really big entities, the working class, the middle class, uh, who, who have not had as much voice as organized constituencies like financial firms or corporations or all of this uh, in, in U.S. foreign policy. And so that was the theme. 
And I think there was there was a lot of consensus around, is this a good idea to try to do this? Absolutely. And and there was reasonable consensus on the fact that we can get this done. Now, when it comes to the specifics of what this means about issue X and Y, there, there, there was a lot less consensus, frankly. So in my view, the, the, uh, this is going to be very useful uh, and, and, and very influential for the uh, Biden administration. Indeed, when, when I talk to people uh, in the business community, in the financial community, uh, I, I tell them if there's one thing you want to read about how the Biden administration is going to think about foreign policy, this report is it. Uh, so I th- think it is going to be very influential. I mean, my view is that Jake Sullivan is really the, the, the brains of the foreign policy national security uh, team uh, at in, in the Biden administration. Uh, the, the guy who had the pen, who did most of the writing of the report, Salman Ahmed, uh, is the new policy planning director in the State Department. So he's, again, in a very influential role to, to be able to take this and run with it. Uh, and at least one or two other people who've worked on the project are likely to get quite senior jobs. So, so yes, I think it, it, it's a good report. It's absolutely something that people should read. Implementing it is going to be a challenge, easier said than done. So some would say linking American economic policy and kind of this voiceless middle class or working class to American foreign policy goals is exactly what President Trump was doing in his own idiosyncratic, Mm -hmm. occasionally crazy, occasionally unproductive way. But that was almost an explicit linkage by him. So is this is this the other side kind of catching up to his leadership model, if you will? So that's a great question. Uh, And I think the answer to that is at least partially yes. Uh, so I think the the critique here, the critique here of globalization is a little more nuanced than Trump's critique that just said this is bad, right? Uh, so this view, this view is that we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater here. That that globalization, international trade, uh, uh, strong U.S. leadership uh, in the world are good things. But it does agree with the point that, that there have been losers here uh, who, who haven't had as strong a political voice uh, as they should have. Uh, and, and so it, is, it, it definitely has uh, some uh, relationship to the, the Trump critique. So where does this leave us on multilateral trade deals? For example, are we ever going to see the revival of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was probably the thing that China feared the most, yet is seemingly off the table for both parties? Can we ever get back to that world? Well, and that's, this is exactly what I was talking about when I said that in these discussions in the group, uh, the, there wasn't always a 
consensus of opinion around specifics. And this is the biggest specific ab about which there wasn't consensus. So, so at least a third, if not more, I, I don't want to give names here of people in the group, including me, uh, found that, that, that we should do this, but this should not, should not leave us uh, permanently out of uh, TPP. Uh, so right now, uh, the, the Biden administration's approach is they don't want to join TPP. TPP's in this category of agreements that, that don't pass a high enough bar uh, in terms of what they're doing for the middle class and the working class. Um, I, so this is going to be a challenge for the Biden ad administration because uh, the, the other big theme, of course, in Biden foreign policy is reestablishing the credibility of U.S. alliances. And for the Asian allies, a lot of the credibility of the U.S. was lost when we didn't come fully on board TPP. I mean, I remember all the way back, Les, you remember this, in 2014, right? Uh, President Obama got Prime Minister Abe of Japan to agree to, to sign on by telling him, look, Abe, this is the year. We're going to do this this year. And then, of course, Harry Reid intervened <laughs> and said, look, Mr. President, if you try to push this before the midterm elections, the Dems are going to get killed. Well, the Dems got killed anyway. Uh, and TPP had a moment. The votes were there in 2014. Uh, and we never did it. And then uh, during the 2016 campaign, both candidates walked away from it. Now, I think the logic of the, the primacy of the competition with China and the logic of the centrality of U.S. allies in that competition, that strategic logic leads back to TPP. Whether the administration is going to be able to see that and do that is another question. Um, you know, I... I frankly think that that it may be there may be a, a window here to do this probably in the six months following the midterm election. Uh, I don't think that that Biden is going to be very interested in, or willing to take that 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 jump uh, really quickly. Uh, but but this is exactly where this issue uh, of uh, uh, of the 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 role of this report uh, comes face to face with some of the challenges that the administration faces, and 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 I do believe that that a, a lot of what the TPP was what was designed to do was to create uh, a very credible economic commercial component to U.S.-Asia policy that would increase the credibility of the security guarantees that the U.S. 
has given to its Asian allies. And, and, and I frankly still believe that that basic equation remains in place. And I think the Biden administration is going to have a very hard time coming up with anything that the Asian allies look at as being robust enough to create that kind uh, of credibility for for uh, this effort to 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 win back allies. So the other uh, while the Biden administration is figuring out if they can get back into TPP, and maybe it takes them three years or five years or who knows. In the meantime, the other big idea out there is some sort of what we used to call industrial policy, where perhaps the U.S. government gets more involved in strategic sectors, telecommunications, some healthcare sectors, uh, artificial intelligence, things like that. Where, where did the group come down on that kind of investment in yeah. a, a more robust competition with China? Yeah, so, so I think there that there we had some really good discussions uh look the the us isn't china it can't be china and it shouldn't be china uh so i think the starting point is china isn't the model on the other hand on the other hand uh i i do think in certain very specific areas uh a a greater top down thrust uh, is necessary and is probably going to be forthcoming. Most significantly, on building a multilateral public-private partnership on creating a commercial alternative for the 5G framework, a commercial alternative to Huawei. Uh, and I think again, the 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 Trump administration put a lot. Uh, of uh, very, very powerful uh, um, barriers uh, in Huawei's path, uh, and, and Huawei's taken a huge hit from that. On the other hand, th- there still hasn't really been any substantial movement to the creation of a non-Chinese competitor. Uh, and, and I do think that the administration uh, is, is gearing up to do that. I think that, that the Japanese have done a lot of thinking about this. Uh, they, they have been actually ahead of the United States in thinking about this. What the actual form this is going to take, I don't know. Uh, but I think this will be the closest thing to a real top-down industrial policy. In addition to that, in addition to that, I do think that that there's a lot that can be done to encourage uh, technological innovation uh, through pretty traditional kinds of policy, but but that there's also a, a willing a, a, a willing set of partners uh, in Europe, in Asia, uh, who would like to work with the U.S. on this. And I think it's going to be easier for the Biden administration because I don't think they're going to, to be as uh, robust in, in saying, look, uh, countries really have to make a choice. You either have to have, have 
have uh, commercial relations with China or with the U.S., you, you can't do both. Every country in the world wants to do both. Uh, and, and frankly, I think the, that, that this, this effort to define, to define this as you're, you're either commercially with us or commercially against us was not all that successful and won't be. And I think the, the Biden administration isn't going to give up on the whole notion, but it is going to, to be much more flexible in terms of working with a lot of countries who just do not want to make that kind of a choice. So every country in Asia is in the category of countries that don't want to make that choice. All right. So let's talk about the Belt and Road Initiative then. Yes. China's China's big uh, foreign aid strategy. It's got multiple components. It's global. Uh, it's uh, it's a direct challenge in a lot of ways to our values and our interests. How should the Biden administration be thinking about BRI and how we we build in perhaps an alternative to that into the yeah. way we do things? Yeah. So so. I think that 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 BRI uh, was a pretty well thought out initiative uh, in terms of what's what's China trying to do here. Three things, it seems to me. One is saying we're a great power now. The the period uh, of uh, of being modest and holding back uh, that that was the injunction of former Supreme Leader Deng Xiaoping. That was absolutely the right thing to have done at the time. That time is over. So we're we're a big boy. We're going to act as a big boy. Second is it was it's seen by the Chinese as being their contribution to globalization and to reshaping globalization in a way more conducive to China's interests, but particularly also uh, they, they were, were quite canny in understanding that partially due to the influence of the global environmentalist movement that, that big Western lenders, uh, both in governments and especially in the multilateral development banks, had basically stopped doing big infrastructure. Yet there's a huge need and demand for big infrastructure. So they they went into this and became sort of the only game in town on this uh, and and have had something of a monopoly. And third, I think they're really trying to, to counteract U.S. influence particularly in Southeast Asia. So, so this thing began, when it began, its main geographic orientation was to China's West, Central Asia, the Gulf, the Middle East. Now it's South. It's Southeast Asia is the, is the key region here. And the Chinese are frankly uh, really trying to, to turn Southeast Asia into a China-dominated economic zone uh, with the long-term goal uh, of ending the U.S. strategic military engagement in, in that region. So, you know, this is, 
This is not about peripheral things. This is a real tough one. But what should we what should we do about it is a tougher question. So so I think one thing uh, is getting much more serious about uh, bigger investments uh, in infrastructure and the the creation uh, of the the U.S. Development Finance Corporation was was an important step in that, although the capitalization here, the resource level is still really small compared to China. So what what this is going to have to be for it to work is really a multilateral exercise between the U.S., the Europeans, Japan. When you get all of us working, we can do some competitive stuff. But I think it's also the case that we have to be careful. Uh, and I think the, the Trump administration went overboard again in, in sort of implying that countries that are participating in BRI are deluding themselves, they're going against their own interests. Uh, and that's actually not true that, that, that I think some countries, a lot of countries, have actually been able to utilize BRI for their own ends without becoming uh, overly uh, tied in with China. The, the, the big example I use on this is Bangladesh, that is one of the biggest recipients of, uh, of Chinese infrastructure investments uh, in the world. And they, they, have, they have vetoed a, a lot of the projects that China brought to them. Uh, they have sustained their principal external relationship is India. They, they're doing all of this stuff with Western donors. So Bangladesh, that, that, that if you're looking for what, what, how countries should be behaving, it's really Bangladesh, not countries that, that refuse to deal with, with China because there are very few of those and there aren't going to be many. So uh, at the, in the last year or so of the Trump administration, folks at AID were flying around the globe talking to our partners about 5G and about kind of some high tech things you don't normally think of as development assistance or in that zone. Right. Do, are, yeah. do, our, do our very good people at USAID need to start thinking outside the box uh, on some of these issues to really respond to the challenge that's out there today? Yeah. So, you know, I think, again, that, that I think a lot of what we were doing on 5G, particularly outside of Europe, was premature because we were asking countries to give up uh, on X before there was a viable Y. Uh, and we were able to do that with, uh, with a bunch of our European partners. It's worked. Uh, Huawei is not going to have a big footprint in 5G in Europe. It's worked a little bit in Asia, but only with our closest allies, Australia, Japan, South Korea. Elsewhere in Asia, it's not working, not working in Latin America. So again, I think that in, in my view, we, we have to figure out 
what the alternative is before making a push so centered on countries not going with China and with Huawei. But I'm, I'm actually optimistic that we are going to do that. And that will create possibilities, at least in some of these countries, although Huawei will continue to have, in my view, a huge cost advantage. Uh, and and in, in my view, uh, except in the, in the upper tier uh, in terms of, uh, of middle-income developing countries, I, I think most of the poor countries are going to end up uh, in in the uh, Huawei five G f- framework. So, David, our our classical economic development uh, programs have been kind of waning over time as a percentage of the activities the U.S. government does. We they've been replaced by uh, global health programs, bigger humanitarian programs as. Um, uh, epidemics and famines have proliferated. Do we do we need to go back to our old economic development model? Maybe revitalize it a little bit and push it out there because it seems to me one of one of the things China is also promoting, in addition to its its kind of cheap telecommunications products, is kind of a more corrupt way yes, of governing for some of these developing yes. countries. Yeah. So should we be? Yeah. Is there an opportunity there for kind of yeah. old school economic development yeah. to really step into the breach? That's a great question, um, and and I think the answer is yes. So so, um, and it's quite interesting because up until about two or three years ago, the Chinese were were much less selling a model than selling a relationship. Right? They were selling a relationship in the last two or three years, and increasingly they've begun selling a model. Uh, and, and I do think that that it's it's absolutely an appropriate use of foreign assistance to get into the competitive game on this with China. Now, again, the key here is ha- having something to compete with, right? The key here is having something to compete with, uh, but. Should the U.S. be be doing uh, more uh, with its tr- uh, development pr- programs that that have a lot in common to what we were doing maybe thirty or forty years ago? I think the answer to that's probably yes. Uh, with with the understanding here that 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 I think much more so than what we did back then, the goal has to be to encourage collaboration with the private sectors, both uh, the U.S. private sector to make investments in these countries and with the local private sectors uh, to to, uh, build their their capabilities. Let's uh, let's turn to American politics, because we're, Ah. we're, we're talking about the linkage between economic policy domestically and how we need to connect it to foreign policy, making sure we're not forgetting about the interests of, of working class folks and middle class folks, particularly in, in the middle part of the country, That's those, right. those elusive Obama Trump voters uh, yep. who feel like they've been neglected. Stepping back, do you, you've worked for Republicans, you've worked for Democrats. 
uh, you've been in the executive branch, you've been in the legislative branch. Do you think we're at, at a real turning point here in American foreign policy thinking if we're, if we're, both sides are kind of agreeing to look inward a little bit more? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. So, I mean, I think it's the case that almost every president comes in wanting to be a domestic-focused president. So I don't think that's, that's really new. I think virtually every president comes in saying domestic policy is going to take precedent over foreign policy. And it's not surprising that that's what they think. Uh, But, you know, you may not want foreign policy, but foreign policy wants you uh, to to take a riff off of Trotsky's great comment about war. Uh, um, So, you know, I remember in in the early days of the of the Bush administration. I mean, President Bush made this whole big thing about he's a domestic policy president, and then you get nine eleven. He's no longer a domestic policy president here. So, so um, you know, I'm I'm not sure we are at a fundamental turning point here. Uh, and I remain, I'm old fashioned and I actually still believe in the possibility of a bipartisan foreign policy. Uh, and I mean, in my view, I, I think that president Biden has been very lax in not bringing in a senior Republican, uh, into his cabinet. Uh, I mean, that, expectations were that he was going to do that. Uh, I think Biden uh, has that. That's what he created these expectations. I mean, the cabinet is pretty much filled now. So they've lost that top opportunity. But, you know, somebody like you, Les, with all of your experience on the Hill, chief of staff in, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you should be like the deputy director of CIA, uh, not CIA. AID. I'm sorry, not CIA. AID. Either, either uh, one would be fine. With well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so I, I do hope that, that, that we do get some appointments of, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of talented Republicans out there. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, I think they, they would be happy to serve. Now we're not going to get one you know, I understand why why President Biden didn't appoint Senator Romney because he's the the Senate is so c- close. There are a key handful of Republicans that, uh, that the president hopes to work with. Romney is extremely high on that list, so so it wasn't going to be a Republican senator uh, who. who who, who got this? But you know, I I, I still believe that that um, bipartisan foreign policy is possible. Uh, and one of the of the positive things about the the team uh, in the administration is I think they're basically not a, a a highly partisan group in thinking about foreign policy. They're partisans uh, in that they have a. A, a high degree of party consciousness affiliation, but your Jake Sullivan's, your Tony Blinken's, 
the, these are are not these are not people who see foreign policy itself in a highly partisan way. So I I'm actually uh, reasonably optimistic here uh, that 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 you can get um, that 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 you can get some bipartisan orientation from the Biden administration, but it's going to take work and you can't, you can't have a bipartisan administration without, uh, if you're a Republican, you have to have Democrats. If you're a Democrat, you, you, you have to have Republicans. And, and, and so the proof will be in the pudding. All right. Now, David, uh, I'm making public something that has been a private discussion for, for us for, for many years. We've, we've had some wagers uh, yes. on, on elections. I think oh, yes. I, I may owe you a steak dinner or two, but we can, yes. we can, we can settle that. I'm, I'm flexible on, on the accountability here. Uh, what's, your, what's your take on the election for next year? I know we're way early. It's 20 yeah. months away, but, yeah. but yeah. who's, who's going to be in charge of the House and the Senate in a couple yeah. of years? Yeah, so I think you do owe me some stakes. Uh, I think that's, I'm glad that you publicly ha- have admitted to that, and now I can hold you to it. Yeah. Uh, so my, my bet is I think the Biden administration uh, is going to get pulled uh, um, further to the left uh, than it, it wants to go f- uh, in terms of its political goals. Uh so, so I think that that, and you're seeing this already with uh, the the um, re, uh, the the stimulus package. I mean, the U.S. economy is beginning to boom, and, and yes, there there are needs out there. But you know, I mean, there was an editorial in the Washington Post last week that right off the top of its head took. Half, half a trillion dollars off of what should be uh, when in in their view of what should be in the package. When the Washington Post is saying that that y- you guys uh, are aiming twenty five percent too high, that's that's probably something that they should be listening to. But it doesn't look like they're going to listen. Uh, so, so I do think that that they're going to get pulled to to the left. Uh, you take that in combination with some of the of the changes uh, due to redistricting. I think the Democrats are going to have a very hard time keeping the House. So uh, my bet is that the House goes Republican. I think the Senate will probably uh, stay pretty much where it is. It's very close now. Uh, I mean, the the Republicans have have a lot more seats up in the in the next round of the cycle, as you know, but, but I think, I think that, that the, um, that the, 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 the house will almost certainly shift. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing for the incumbent. Uh, and, you know, uh, president Clinton found his mojo, uh, after the Dems lost the house, uh, uh, what year was that? Way back in 94. 94. Exactly. Yep. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, I actually think that, that, that pulling, that forcing Biden to govern more from the center, I actually think that Biden's orientation is to govern from the center, but 
you know, he he's now he the with with control of both houses, although by tiny margins, uh, uh, he he is getting pulled to the left. That's where the energy is in the Democratic Party. Uh, but I I think it's actually going to be positive for the Democrats to get pulled back to the Senate uh, to to the center uh, after the uh, after the 2022 midterm election. All right. I agree with you on the House. I'll disagree on the Senate. Let's bet. Let's double down on the state dinner over over control of the Senate uh, for 2023. Excellent. All right. Excellent. Deal. All right. Grant, what's our last question? So I, I just want to go back to the conversation we were having uh, a little bit earlier, uh, where you said that, you know, Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken are not really seeing foreign policy with a, a partisan lens. Can we really have domestic foreign policy fusion without bringing the rancor and uh, parsimony of our domestic politics into our international relations? That's a great question, Grant. Uh, so, so, you know, the interesting thing to me now, watching, watching the Biden administration is that foreign policy is the exception to the rule of, it, uh, uh, of the administration getting pulled to the left. So I generally think that the administration getting pulled to the left uh, and on domestic politics, that's where the energy is. On foreign policy, not happening. So, so the left so far is 0 for 2 on foreign policy efforts to, to get the Biden administration to do something that they didn't do. Um, number one is they, they wanted a very rapid return, uh, almost without any conditions to the JCPOA. President ha- has made clear that, that he wants to get back into the JCPOA. I think he's serious about that, uh, um, but it, it's not going to happen uh, through a unilateral move by the United States. It's going to have to be uh, the result of a negotiation. Secondly, uh, the, the left was, was p- pushing very hard on sanctions against the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia uh, over the Khashoggi assassination. Ad- ad- administration is not going to go there. Uh, so I do think that this administration uh, does have some ability to to go towards a a more um, middle class and 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 worker friendly foreign economic policy because that's the direction the Republicans have gone in already uh, and 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 so I do think there 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 will be a bit of a cons- for those things on both sides of the aisle uh, here. So, so I do think that, 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 you, uh, that the administration is going to be able to, 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 to make these moves and, partial, and it's going to be able to do it partially because the real left wing of the Democratic Party is very weak on foreign policy. They frankly haven't developed foreign policy views yet that can really pass the, the te- 
the, the test of very close examination. Uh, and, and until and unless they do that, I think they're, they're going to remain pretty peripheral to foreign policy, despite the fact that the overall orientation of the Democratic Party is pushing more towards the left. David, this was fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. And, and I, I really enjoyed the discussion and, and invite me back next year. For sure. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Lester Munson for hosting, and Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Mm-hmm.